Tucker Carlson and see what uh, Tucker has to say for himself today. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight we have not brought you enough on this story that you may know its outlines. For the past two months, 25 million people in Shanghai, China, one of the biggest cities in the world, have been trapped inside their homes. On the basis of what it claims is a COVID risk, but is clearly purely political, the Chinese government has locked them in, can't get out. Anyone suspected of being sick has been shipped to a squalid quarantine camp, sometimes without running water. And then to make the humiliation complete, police collected household pets, tore them from their owner's hands, and beat them to death in the streets, claiming that dogs and cats somehow spread disease. Anyone who complained about this got a very clear answer from the government, which was broadcast at full volume from drones circling overhead. They said, quote, control your soul's desire for freedom. So people did. They had no choice. That's what life is like in an authoritarian society. And not just in China, also in New Zealand. Less than a year ago, the left-wing New Zealand government shut down the entire country over a single COVID case. Don't talk to your neighbors, commanded the prime minister. Keep to your bubbles, quote. In neighboring Australia, they did pretty much the same thing. Police in Australia beat a man for daring to have a cigarette outside his own apartment. Now, that may all seem horrifying to you, but public health authorities here loved it. They looked on in envy. Unfortunately, as Tony Fauci recently explained to MSNBC, quote, you'd never be able to implement measures like that here in the United States. And that's true, you'd hope. But why couldn't you? Why couldn't you do that here? Well, Tony Fauci didn't say it out loud, but if you think about it for a minute, it's pretty obvious. What do all those other countries have in common? China, New Zealand, Australia. Different populations, different languages, different forms of government, but all of them have disarmed their populations. In those countries, ordinary people are defenseless and the government knows it. China, of course, was the first to confiscate privately held firearms. Happened more than 50 years ago. Political power grows from the barrel of a gun. Chairman Mao famously observed, and he wanted all of that power for himself, so he got it. In 1996, Australia followed after a mass shooting committed by a mentally disabled man. Sound familiar? The Australian government in the aftermath of that declared that self-defense was no longer a legitimate reason to own a firearm. And the government confiscated hundreds of thousands of guns from law-abiding citizens. That's what happened. In 2019, after yet another mass shooting by a crazy person, neighboring New Zealand did pretty much the same thing. So now, in all three of those countries, China, Australia, and New Zealand, firearms are now registered and licensed by the government and permitted only for hunting and sports shooting. Citizens have been disarmed. So last week's mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, occurred more than 2,000 miles from Canada. You wouldn't think it was connected in any way to Canada. But that country's prime minister, Justin Trudeau, saw an opening to repeat what is now a highly familiar script. So on Monday, Trudeau announced that because a deranged teenager in the U.S. had committed an act of violence, Canadians would no longer be allowed to defend themselves. Watch. We recognize that the vast majority of gun owners use them safely and in accordance with the law. But other than using firearms for sport shooting and hunting, there is no reason anyone in Canada should need guns in their everyday lives. There's no reason that anyone in Canada should need guns in their everyday lives. That's the word from the Botox dictator to the North. That means anyone in Canada apart from Justin Trudeau. Because guns, it turns out, are a huge part of Justin Trudeau's everyday life, much more than your life. 
At all times, Justin Trudeau is surrounded by firearms, automatic rifles, extended magazines, what we call weapons of war. And Justin Trudeau always will be surrounded by weapons of war. Even if he succeeds in confiscating every last privately held firearm in the nation of Canada, Justin Trudeau will never disarm his own bodyguards. Why? Because he understands perfectly well that guns are the key to his power. So actually, in one of those ironies we've become very familiar with recently, no one loves guns more than Justin Trudeau. In the rest of Canada, in point of fact, guns aren't much of an issue. There were just 16 homicides in the million-person city of Ottawa over all of last year, and half of those involved knives and fists, not guns. One of them was a self-defense case. So guns are not killing a lot of Canadians. What is killing a lot of Canadians are drug ODs. More than 5,000 Canadians died last year from opioids alone, mostly fentanyl. So how is Justin Trudeau responding to this? Well, days ago, he announced that he is legalizing fentanyl, along with cocaine and methamphetamine, in Canada's third largest province, British Columbia. This is a place, this is a province, where more than 165 people died last month from drug ODs. By comparison, in 2020, in the entire nation of Canada, 23 people died per month in acts involving a firearm. So why, if you were concerned about public health, would you ban firearms but legalize fentanyl? Fentanyl is what people are dying from, not guns. How does that make sense? Well, it only makes sense if your goal is to keep the population weak and vulnerable, even if it kills them. And that would explain why Trudeau is not stopping with British Columbia. He also has said he's working with Toronto and Edmonton to legalize fentanyl there as well. Meanwhile, at the same time, also under the guise of public health, Trudeau has just announced an indefinite extension of his country's travel ban for millions of Canadian citizens, just like in China, just like in Cuba. So if you haven't taken Justin Trudeau's totally ineffective yet still mandatory COVID vax, you can't leave your own country. You also can't travel internally by plane or train. This is not a public health measure, of course. It's a show of force from a tyrant. But if you don't like it tough, there's nothing you can do. Why? Because you've been disarmed. It will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. And will require the permanent alteration of long gun magazines so they can never hold more than five rounds. You can have all the fentanyl you want, but you can't defend yourself. And it's not just gun confiscation, as you heard, it's magazine confiscation. And as always, our authorities, mostly in the Democratic Party, are taking very close notes when they watch Justin Trudeau speak. Joe Biden just announced that 9mm ammunition is, quote, high caliber, which makes anyone who understands guns laugh, and should therefore be banned. 9mm, the single most common pistol round sold in the United States by far, should be banned, says Joe Biden. In New York, the unelected governor, Kathy Hochul, just announced legislation to, quote, eliminate the grandfathering of large capacity ammunition feeding devices. That means your legal magazine is now illegal. Possessing it is now a crime. It wasn't yesterday. It is today. That's the word from the unelected governor of New York, because that's democracy. She also plans to create a licensing requirement for all semi-automatic weapons. That's not just the scary-looking ones you see on TV. That's all semi-automatic weapons, including your deer rifle. So while they disarm you, as in Canada, our leaders are busy decriminalizing serious crimes, 
ones that actually hurt you. For example, according to the Seattle Times, police in Seattle are no longer investigating rape. Yes, they're, quote, no longer assigning detectives this new year to cases with adult victims. That's rape victims. They'll have to do without. So if any of the people in charge wanted this to be a safer country, they wouldn't have caused the current crime wave in the first place. They would not have defunded police. They wouldn't be encouraging open-air drug markets in our cities. They wouldn't be sending crack pipes to addicts. But they're not worried about the public health at all. What they're worried about is public resistance to their policies. Disarming the population ends that resistance. They're very concerned because they know they rule illegitimately that the population will rise up. That probably has not occurred to you. It's definitely occurred to them, and it's occurred to the corporate media they control, whose job it is to push their power grabs. And they would very much like a Canada-slash-China-style gun ban in this country. Watch them salivate. We need only look south of the border to know that if we do not take action firmly and rapidly, it gets worse and worse. There's something pretty striking about that phrase he used, right? South of the border described us, the United States. It's a phrase you hear so often in this country by people who are kind of denigrating Mexico as a supposedly lawless land of, you know, ultraviolence. That's how they see us. Trudeau says, uh, listen, he understands most gun owners use their guns safely, but there's really no need, like many people have been talking about, for assault-style weapons in their country. I want to consider how a real democracy actually handles gun issues and changes to gun laws. Consider what Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had to say about guns in Canada. <laughs> Canada looks down on America, informs the Rachel Maddow impersonators on MSNBC. Notice they used to brag about the Canadian health care system. It's so great. Why don't we emulate it? You haven't heard that recently. Why is that? Because Canadians flee here for serious operations. And the truth is, in Canada, as in the United States, the people you just saw on television, the people who are formulating these restrictions, these gun grabs, these violations of your constitutional rights, will never, under any circumstances, give up their own weapons of war. They just want to make it harder for you to defend yourself. Now, as is the case with all of these laws, from cigarette taxes to gun laws, the poor get hurt the most. Charlie Duff and Steve Neveling, two journalists in Michigan, found that police response times in poor neighborhoods are about twice as long as they are in rich neighborhoods. Oh, so if anyone needs the power to defend himself, it's people who live in poor neighborhoods. And those happen to be the same people the Democratic Party claims to care about. But they don't seem to actually care. And that's why Beto O'Rourke is now talking again about seizing AR-15s from the homes of law-abiding people. Here he is. Not only should no one be able to purchase an AR-15 or an AK-47 because they're designed to kill humans and that high-impact, high-velocity round will just tear up everything inside. You'll bleed out before we can get you back to life. Um, but I don't think that the people who have them right now in civilian use should be able to keep them. Should be able to keep them. Beto O'Rourke is deciding what rights you should have. Beto O'Rourke, who's actually never had a job, ever, who lives on inherited money, who's not even very smart, is telling you what the parameters of your God-given rights enshrined in our Constitution ought to be. Well, I don't think you should have that right. Buzz off, pal. Now, you'd think Republican office holders exist to push back against this and to defend the Bill of Rights. Isn't that their job? Isn't that why you voted for them? Oh, no. They're playing along just to show they care. 
So this weekend, one of the weakest of them all, really an embarrassment to the state of Arkansas, the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, noted ally to the trans community, said he's open to more restrictions on legal rifles. Watch Asa Hutchinson. What's the one area, and I'm talking about guns here, not as much as schools, what's the one area on gun safety where you think there could be common ground? Well, first of all, I think you've got to be able to talk about uh, the uh, AR-15 style weapons and uh, whether that's an 18 or 21 age. Uh, you have to at least have a conversation about that. So you got to wonder, so Aces Hutchinson's thinking to himself, God, how do I impress the CNN anchor? I'm not some troglodyte from Conway, Arkansas. I get what I need to do. I'm a responsible adult. I've been to the Aspen Institute. I'd go to Davos if they invited me. But you got to wonder how many of his constituents agree with him. Hmm, probably about zero. He doesn't care. So you can see where this is moving. They're going to try and take your guns away. What will happen when they do? Will it be a safer country? Have they been good at disarming criminals? No. It turns out you will be completely dependent upon them for your safety. What will that look like? Well, we could ask the woman who called the police from the grocery store in Buffalo two weeks ago when a lunatic walked in and started murdering people. She called 911. And what happened? The 911 anchor hung up on her. Or we could ask the parents of those kids in Uvalde. The police, just true, showed up and stood outside. Watch. Look at that poor little kid, that poor baby. You don't understand. Are you crazy? I want to go to the summer. You're scared to get shot? I'll go in with all of them. Yeah, I will. Okay. So it's not an attack on police. We defend the police and we'll continue to do that, including the ones in Uvalde. No doubt they're mostly good and decent and patriotic people. But the truth about all police, about all government workers, about everyone outside your family is they're never going to care about your family as much as you do because it's your family, not theirs. You will lay down your life to defend your children. Why would they? They're not their children. It's not an attack. It's just an obvious observation. And a lot of times, the truth is, since we've defunded the police across the country, they don't even show up because there aren't enough of them to show up. So where there were, where were the police, by the way, when this woman got stabbed in broad daylight in New York City? Look at this footage. It's from May 22nd in Brownsville, Brooklyn. There were no cops there. Guy just walked up and stabbed her. These kind of attacks happen a lot. And they are particularly common in the very cities that have disarmed law-abiding gun owners. The footage you're seeing now is from the Bronx in March. Thugs robbed a young woman at gunpoint, then turned the gun at her three-year-old boy's head. The woman was taking her gun, it was autism, to pre-K. Where were the police? Well, they weren't there. They've been defunded. But even if they hadn't been defunded, they can't be everywhere. If you want to defend yourself, you're going to have to do it yourself. That's just the truth. By contrast, a woman in Charleston stopped a mass shooter the other day. She didn't call the police. He showed up with an AR-15 and said he was going to kill everybody. You know what she did? She shot him to death. Police say an AR-15 style rifle showed up to a party. This video shows the scene from stories above. It was captured by a cell phone and sent to Eyewitness News. The man with the rifle was later identified by police as Dennis Butler. Court documents reveal he's been convicted of two felonies, which include child neglect and child abuse. Charges such as those make it illegal for him to have a gun or ammo. But Wednesday night, he allegedly fired into a crowd here at Renaissance Circle. Charleston police say he was shot and killed by a woman that was licensed to carry a gun. Oh, so what's the headline from that story? 
he was not allowed to be in possession of a gun. It was against the law for him to have a gun. But it looks like gun laws did nothing to deter the lunatic with the rifle when he started, to sh started shooting strangers, and neither did the police because they weren't there. And no police officer could get there in time to save the lives of the people present. The only reason they're still alive is because a woman in the crowd, a citizen, had a gun, and she used it to defend herself and the rest of the people there. Why is she not a hero? The truth is, any government that tries to make you more dependent, any government that tries to make you less self-sufficient, is by definition a malicious government. They are not on your side. They're trying to hurt you. Former NHL player Theo Fleury understands that. He's a Canadian. He played for many years in the NHL. If you're a hockey fan, you know exactly who he is. He's your hero. He's now the director of media for Canadians for Truth, Justice, and Freedom. He joins us tonight. Theo, thanks so much. Okay, so I wasn't planning to stream tonight. I was just outside. It's a beautiful sunny afternoon. I was just reflecting on nationalism and how nationalism enhances the dignity of the individual. It enhances connection between people. And once people touch the, the dignity that comes with nationalism, they're highly unlikely to ever want to give it up. And then it suddenly struck me, wait, what unites people who have disgust and contempt for nationalism? It's people who have contempt for, the individu for individuals. It's people who have contempt for the dignity of individuals. It's uh, people like Richard Spencer, right? He believes very much in rule by experts, rule by aristocrats, uh, rule by an elite. He likes the European Union. He's not, he's not a fan of, of nationalism. He thinks that uh, nationalism is gross. He, he wants to destroy the Amish, destroy vast swaths of humanity. Uh, not a big believer in the inherent dignity of the individual. Josh Randall keeps saying, oh, this is just his uh, head injuries from, from playing football. No, I think that's authentic to who Richard Spencer is. He keeps banging on in, in the same theme. I mean, yesterday we heard him talk about how he wants to destroy the Amish. He wants to destroy vast swaths of the American population. Just absolutely annihilate it. He has absolute contempt for the Amish. And you'll also find that in the musings of Kenneth Brown. He has contempt for people who don't share his metaphysical certitudes. And so many of the strongest opponents of nationalism are religious. And so if you don't share their religion, if you don't share their theology, if you don't share their level of religious observance, they're highly likely to have absolute contempt for you. So I'm just kind of noticing a trend here. It just came to me right before the show. wasn't even planning to stream tonight, but I thought, whoa. How does this idea stand up? When I think about many of the most fervent 
opponents of nationalism, these are people who tend to be fervently opposed to the dignity of individuals. They are people who want to destroy vast swaths of individuals who hold you know, vast swaths of humanity in contempt for the most uh, you know, minor of reasons. Like, how could anyone hate the Amish? Right, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I, I'm no fan of hers, but I, I don't understand being absolutely, you know, wanting to destroy her and Lauren Bobbitt is more from the May 29 Richard Spencer call. But there are many layers. There are, there are many layers here and probably want to listen to this again and think again yeah, and again uh, and again about it. I, I, I get a little maybe a little worked up when people stereotype like a white nationalist as Marjorie Taylor Greene. I mean, that's just, maybe I'm just being honest. Yeah, me, me too, that, me but too. I, I, I'm I sure don't like that. Yeah. She's, she's I, an unconscious white nationalist. She is the face of white nationalism. I'm, I'm sorry. Like, yeah, Richard sounds pretty intoxicated here. I, no, I hate no, it. I, 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 I passionately I, hate it, but no, it's just, no, no, no. Sometimes you have to face the reality of it. No, yeah. Well, that's that's your opinion, and okay. she's not, and that's yeah, that's just your opinion. <laughs> that's just your opinion, man. Yeah, that, but but it, 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 it's 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 absurd. What I'm saying, though, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not just saying that for no reason. Like I and I lament it like passionately lament it but like that he's a seems... face of conservatism yeah and, and and i think white nationalism is so infected by conservatism that it's very difficult to tell the difference very often and, and that that's bizarre that conservatism is so infected by white nationalism it's very difficult to tell the difference i, I don't think 99.9% .9 of people who know something about conservatism and know something about white nationalism find it difficult to tell the difference. It, I, this is just a problem. Like, you know, maybe I'm being a little provocative pushing the envelope by saying that, but this is like a deep problem that we need to confront, which is that all of that energy of 2016, it brought us to this. And I, and I have to say, yeah. conservatism isn't white nationalist because in Brazil there's a huge conservative party, so it's more like the the race aspect jumped from progressives before World War II and then went to conservatives after in order to survive. But now but, it's just mess. Hold on, but white nationalism. There were guys in white nationalism 1.0 that said, "Don't vote for Trump because he's a Zionist," yeah. and that yeah. was the alt right. And Richard, hey. You were kind of the leader of that, and you were out there promoting Trump. Yeah. So the alt-right is the one. I mean, like, white nationalism 1.0 was way smarter than the alt-right when it came to Trump. Oh, okay. Well, who are you referring to? Because David Duke was very pro-Trump and very pro-Trump even mm -hmm. in 2020. Well, Pierce, West 1.0. Right, Pierce, but we don't know what Pierce would have said. He, he might very well have been anti-Trump. I, I don't know, though. Uh, maybe I'm when I think white nationalism, I'm thinking something different than you and some of the other guys. Well, if, I'm thinking people, something radically different. If, what do you if, think? Uh, of just I'm I'm thinking of more of like people like Pierce, even Rockwell, like like these guys. I don't think Rockwell would be wearing a Trump hat in 2022. Trust me. 
Pierce, I agree with Pierce. That's a good point about Pierce. Rockwell and all of those people would be wearing red hats. I, I just, I don't see how this is a really good point because if someone opposes Trump on the grounds that he's a Zionist, you're still not opposing Trump for the right reasons. Like, yeah, Zionism's stupid, right? But it's like, it, there's, it, it's more than that for me. Like, this is, there's, like, Trump is distasteful for more reasons that are more important than his Zionism. Well, more, he's a traitor. In many ways, he's a traitor to the country, to his office. And, and not only that, but he's, he's so, like, he's, like, anti-strategic, right? Like, he could, he could have done so much more if he was really creative and had a little bit more vision for what needed to be done. And, you know, like, for the imperial office of president, he did not embrace that. He made it into a joke, and it set us back a lot. Yeah, and, and yeah. Who's, who's responsible for that? We are. I voted for him in 2016. I'm pretty sure you did. Richard did. Right. So it's our fault. But, but, well, well, but it's totally our fault. We, but, we, but we would not have learned the lesson if we had just yeah. opposed him on ideological grounds because he's, he's Zionist, right? Like, that's what I'm saying. We have to learn our lesson here, which is, which is, which is to go beyond the whole Zionist conversation, the whole okay. racialist conversation, and talk more about the duty of imperialism, of like what that actually means, of governance, of global governance. We have, hey, look, it was an alternative vision to, to Davos and to the Western so you want to fight that, that, that sounds great. That sounds all great. But when I voted for Trump in 2016, I just wanted him to help, you know, some of these working class whites who have had their life destroyed. I don't think that makes me somebody who's, oh, a backwards white nationalist. No, that, that makes, you, no, it it makes you a decent person because I, I, I was motivated by the same thing. And I, I still feel that way to a large degree. Like we have to control the labor market with immigration reform. I still feel that way. I think that's just good governance. But good governance is, is like bigger picture than just like, ah, I hate Mexicans. Right. And that's what I want to avoid. Right. I don't want yeah. this to be like the whole like immigration debate to turn into this like this lowbrow, like a uh, conservative, unconscious white nationalism, which is like what propelled Trump to office. It wasn't Richard Spencer. It was this whole like, uh, you know, yeah, I, I, it wasn't Richard himself, but it was a lot of people like him that did motivate people like me who normally don't vote to get out there and vote. So the alt right plays a huge responsibility we, in, in that. We work. did. Absolutely. We did. And I we did. And I have learned like I have tried to learn certain things from this and, and I, I don't have any regrets or something, but. I, I obviously like my voting for Joe Biden was just this like emphatic <laughs> message, like, do not do this again, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, we do bear responsibility. I think I've said this before and I genuinely believe that. I, I think that Trump would have lost 20, the 2016 election if he did not have the alt-right. We rode his coattails to a large degree. I totally agree with that, but, but, but like we were indispensable in that coalition. We gave it that, that special ingredient, like this, the cinnamon in the, in, the, in the recipe that you don't necessarily taste, but it's kind of there. And isn't that yeah. because we, we saw something, we saw Trump as a vehicle towards something bigger and better because we had a secret yeah. hope that maybe he was more intelligent than he actually was. Maybe he was more based than he actually was. What could Trump right. have done with that ultimate power without a one-party state? What could he have done? Because as long as there's two parties, there will be polarization that creates openness. And Joe I, Biden I think would be more centrist if, if there was only one party, if the Democratic Party was the only party. Joe Biden wouldn't actually, have to vote because he wouldn't have to worry about being reelected against the Republicans. That's a question I think Richard's more qualified to answer, like as far as like the nuts and bolts of what would politically be more effective, because that's not my specialty. I, I think more, more was certainly possible. Um, and I think he could have attempted to transcend polarization, but instead he decided to just, you know, pour gasoline on it and just, just lean into it as much as possible. And I think that was actually a horrible mistake on Trump's part. Agreed. And, I, and I would not blame myself for that, actually. I mean, I, I was. Yeah, the problem with Trump, guys, he was so polarizing. Why couldn't Trump be more of a united like? Richard Spencer. I might have been a Trump fanboy, you know, an embarrassing Trump fanboy for a time, but like at least the way that I would articulate things, it was about kind of like moving beyond conservatism. Trump just leaned into it in, in a just embarrassing way. Yeah. Why couldn't he be non embarrassing? Like, say, a Richard Spencer? Well, Johnny Depp won his trial today against Amber Heard. She owes him about $10 million. Now we're talking about Australia. Okay. Yes. You hear that? You said the day I chopped my finger off? 
He was talking let's, about let's Australia. Let's play it again. Let's begin. Thank you. Hi, you're talking about. I don't know. I'm talking about Australia. The day that now I we're talking about Australia. Okay. Are, are you sure that? Yeah. Let's do it one more time. What I'm saying. Was it the day that I got my finger chopped off? No, no, you say the day that I chopped my finger off. So let's play it one more time because I think I left out the word that. It says the day that I chopped my finger off. It's uh, Australia somehow to blame. They're talking about Australia when uh, Johnny Depp or Amber chopped Johnny's finger off. Okay, back to... My main point, I was inspired by a terrific terrific op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today, The West's Struggle for Mental Health. So why do you have such high rates of mental dysfunction in open societies and low rates in authoritarian societies? And why are America's mental health problems steadily getting worse? So functional mental illness has no cure. It can be managed sometimes with lithium or Prozac. The effectiveness of this management depends on a patient's rationality, but a symptom of mental illness is a lack of rationality. So if we consider the current rates of mental ill health among college students, we might expect judgments about economic, military, political, or social matters by two out of five of every American soon to become unreliable. So mental illness has unknown biological origins, right? Its rates of incidence since 1840s are all over the map, which proves that its origins are not primarily biological. Yet mental health research focuses exclusively on biology, does not cast a wider explanatory net. Now, Leah Greenfeld, who is a sociologist and a scholar of nationalism, suggests that functional mental illness is a disease of prosperous and secure liberal democracies. So the more a society is dedicated to the value of equality and the more choices it offers for individual self-determination, the higher its rates of mental illness. And these rates increase with the increase in available occupational, geographic, religious, gender, and lifestyle-related choices. So as we keep expanding human freedom, now you can even choose you know, your sex, your sexual orientation, whether or not you want to be religious, right? As people get more and more choice, they get more and more mentally ill. So the United States leads the world as the country most affected by mental illness because there's probably more choice and freedom in the United States than any other country. Now, by contrast, rates of functional mental illness in societies that are insecure, poor, inegalitarian, or authoritarian are remarkably low. So equality inevitably makes self-definition a matter of one's own choice. And the formation of personal identity is necessary for mental health, and it becomes a personal responsibility, and it's a burden some people can't shoulder. So it used to be, you were born a Seventh-day Adventist, you would live and die a Seventh-day Adventist. You were born an Orthodox Jew, you would live and die as an Orthodox Jew. You were born a Catholic, you would live and die as a Catholic. Right? People's lives were largely set out for them at birth. But particularly since the 1960s, we've had ever-increasing amounts of freedom. So it's not such a big deal now to leave the religion you're born in and uh, convert to another. So mental illness expresses itself centrally in dissatisfaction with the self. And so with all the choices available, social maladjustment is widespread in democracies. Now, why do we have these soaring rates in recent decades? 
or they relate to what happened to the West after the dissolution of the Soviet Union. So the disappearance of the West's common opponent rendered individual identities in the West more confusing and dissatisfying. So having lost sight of what they as a society were against, millions of Westerners lost the sense of what they represented. They rejected common reference points such as personal responsibility. That had previously constituted the core of the self in the West. So now we get instead virtues and vices, Soviet style, that come to be seen as characteristic of groups. So significant social groups are increasingly defined genetically, and all personal discomfort is now attributed to society, and so the burden of responsibility is being shifted off individual sh shoulders onto society. So you'd think this would make people feel better. Well, has it worked out that way? Because if you are shifting responsibility to society, then your mental struggles are not your fault, and the power of your mental health belongs to other people, to society, not to you. So we have transformed an understanding of justice from one based on one's individual actions to one based on collective biologically determined dispositions. So this encourages social maladjustment because people believe themselves fundamentally decent and they're uncomfortable with a the society they view as indecent. So huge numbers are trapped within this vicious yet inescapable genetically determined identity which they're trying to escape through things like transgenderism. So this is interesting thought from Leah Greenfeld, a professor of sociology, the author of Mind, Modernity, and Madness, The Impact of Culture on Human Experience. She also wrote about five books on nationalism. So uh, her first book on nationalism is Nationalism, Five Roads to Modernity. So she examines the emergence spread of nationalism in the first five societies which define themselves as nations, England, France, Russia, Germany, the United States. She traces the birth of the idea of the nation to 16th century England. So this was brought about by the historic accident of the War of the Roses, which created a vacuum in the upper strata of the English feudal society, leading to an unprecedented amount of upward social mobility. And this also followed the Black Death, where about a third of the population of Europe died and so wages, real wages, went sky high, and people had far more choice and far more opportunities for upward mobility. So upward mobility is a new experience for many people, is a bewildering experience, and frequently a positive experience for many of the English. And it required justification because you couldn't really make sense of it within the framework of their previous feudal consciousness. So at the time, the word nation meant an elite. So the English defined the English people. The word people was defined as the lower classes. A nation right, elevated the entire population to the dignity of the elite. So this is where our distinct modern world was born. So nationalism is the equation of the people with the nation. So it destroys traditional social hierarchies, creates a national identity, and it grants people dignity which was previously only enjoyed by the elites. Really, only the elites had considerable freedom to make of their lives what they will. So national identity develops dignity, makes dignity the experience of every member of the nation. And then once one experiences dignity, it cannot be given up. So the fundamental equality of national membership then implies an open and inclusive social stratification, which encourages all people to mobilize and to play the active political and cultural role formerly played only by the elites. So the people increasingly become the bearer of sovereignty, replacing God and king, 
they have the freedom and the right to decide their own as well as their common destiny. So you get popular sovereignty along with this fundamental equality of membership as well as secularization. These are the three core principles of nationalism. So at the core of nationalism is this compelling inclusive image of society and an image of a sovereign community of fundamentally equal members. So rule by the people, the national community is no longer in a state created by God and owned by the monarch. It now requires an impersonal form of government. So democracy is logically implied in nationalism because of the principles of popular sovereignty and the equality of membership. So all modern states built under the, the influence of nationalism are therefore democracies. So there exist three ideal types in the Max Weberian sense of nationalism. There's individualistic civil, civic nationalism, which you find in the United States, collectivist civic nationalism, and collectivist ethnic nationalism. So the individualist civic and collectivist civic nationalisms tend to result in liberal democracies, such as Britain, the United States, and France. France is more the collectivist civic nationalism, and then collectivist ethnic nationalism tends to produce authoritarian democracies such as Russia and Germany. So the next book was The Spirit of Capitalism. So she asks in this book, what causes the reorientation of economic activity from just getting by to growth? So she pr proposes it is nationalism instead of Protestantism that provides the ethics. The spirit of capitalism is nationalism. So it's those states that developed a strong national identity that exploded into prosperity, while a state like Holland, which did not develop a strong national identity, did not. So there's this causal relationship between nationalism and the modern economy. So nationalism is inherently egalitarian, creates a feeling of dignity, promotes a type of social structure needed to develop the modern economy, an open system, Social mobility, labor is free, expands the sphere of operation of market forces. Because members of the nation are invested in the dignity of the individual, this then affects relationship to other nations. So nationalism also implies international competition. And to sustain the nation's prestige, nationalism presupposes a commitment to constant economic growth because economic achievement is significant for national prestige. Now, Russian nationalists, by contrast, did not designate the economic sphere as a venue for international competition. So the modern economy is stimulated and sustained by nationalism. So the anomic states situations, that, all right, that's a social condition defined by uprooting or breaking down a moral value, standards, or guidance for individuals to follow, anomy. So in England, France, Russia, Germany, the United States, these unamique situations created the idea of the nation to spread and to take over. Now, the third book is Mind, Modernity, and Madness, the third major book here in this series on nationalism, The Impact of Culture and Human Experience. And so she takes from Darwin's Survival of the Fittest, and she pro proposes a symbolic process culture and mind. So you've got a species habitat and the species as an organism. You've got the symbolic process on the collective level. Culture represents the environment in which the mind and the brain function. So culture calls into being and shapes the structure of the mind, but it does not determine them. 
the necessary participation of the brain in every mental process precludes the possibility of such determination. So within a biological reality, culture is the environment in which the mind is created and sustained. So she focuses on madness, the big three mental diseases of schizophrenia, which is where you read too much into what's going on around you, bipolar disorder, where you're up and down, up and down, and depression, where you become blasé about everything going on around you. So she says modern culture is the result of the emergence of national consciousness because nationalism is a form of consciousness which projects the image of the dignity of the individual, free to roam, free to make decisions. The individual can cut through traditional definitions of identity and go create his own life. So you've got a secular egalitarian worldview. Individuals are all members of an inherently equal elite. Therefore, all identities are imaginable, and it's theoretically possible for all in individuals within this secular egalitarian worldview to go make of themselves what they want. So this consciousness allows for endless possibility, but it also requires endless choice. One of the things I loved about my conversion to Orthodox Judaism is that it reduced my choices. So instead of having 187 choices each day, uh, I have like three choices each day. Because once you convert to Orthodox Judaism and you live within Orthodox Judaism, most of your choices are made for you. Because it's exhausting to constantly choose. Right? I, I want to have a limited number of choices. So all these choices makes the formation of individual identity difficult because the more choices one has, the less secure you are, less secure you become in the choices you've already made. You have more and more difficulty making up your mind. You have more and more difficulty constructing your own identity because your identity is not just something given to you and inherited at birth. And so this burden of navigating all these infinite choices falls on the individual's mind and stymies the function of the will. And then the brain is necessarily affected. So just as food choices affect the physical body, Right, all these choices in the type of life you want to create affect and take a toll on the mind. So is everything falling apart? The Atlantic essay where I say, of course, our polarization goes back to our social media. There are all kinds of other factors, and I should have listed even more. So in some ways, we've been here before. And of course, we were very polarized in the 1850s and 60s. And of course, 1968, around that period, there was a lot of violence, uh, a, lot, a lot more political violence than there is today. So in many ways, uh, we've been here before, and in many ways, the roots of where we are go back well before. Uh, I focused not on the origin of social media in 2004, when most of the platforms come out, but in 2009, when Facebook adds the like button, Twitter adds the retweet button, and things become just much more viralized. Uh, before 2009, you could put up any crazy conspiracy you wanted, but it wasn't going to reach millions of people within 24 hours. There was no way to do that. And after 2009, with the retweet button especially, now things can go global within a day or two. Um, so I would agree with you that in many ways we've been here before, but I think that there's something new. Um, and, and this is where I urge people, don't just be a cognitive psychologist. Almost all of this discussion is about cognitive psychology. It's about information and information technologies. We're drowning in information. Maybe is it good information? Is it bad information? Everyone's focusing on the information. And I'm not that interested in the information. I'm a social psychologist. I'm interested in social interaction, social relationships. And even though, of course, our, our polarization, a lot of it is due to uh, cable TV. The three, having three television networks was an historical mm -hmm. anomaly, which was the age of mass media. We all had the same news, and it was, that wasn't the case in the 18th and 19th century, and it will never again be the case in, in, for the rest of humanity, or at least in the next 100 years. Um, so if you focus just on information, 
you would say, well, that was a temporary period. Uh, and now, of course, there were more information sources, but that's just like it was in the 18th and 19th centuries. No, what I want to say is um, none of these older technologies made us afraid of the person sitting next to us. What changed in 2014, 2015 is that for the first time, professors became afraid of their own students. I shouldn't say first time. Of course, that's happened before in the Chinese Cultural Revolution. There are times when professors feared their students. A little of but, that in the late 60s in America, I would yes, say. Yes, you're right. Okay. I mean, I, Thank I, you. You're I, right about that. I once met a guy who was a dean at Columbia, and a student walked in and shot him. He lived, apparently, because I was okay. talking to him, but, but uh, there was some of that. There was yeah, some no, of that. You, you are right. There was, there was what you can say it was, you can say it was just student radicalism. In the, in, of course, and that was in France, it was in China, it was in America. So no, you're right, there are previous periods. But, where, but now what changed in 2014, 2015 is our, most of our students are still perfectly reasonable, curious. Surveys show that they believe in free speech, they want to learn. The average student hasn't changed. What's changed is the dynamics, where it used to be, if I was lecturing to a room of 300 students, say, at UVA when I was teaching intro psych, I could be provocative. And, uh, and I had to pass the reasonable person standard. That is, I could do things that would make students uncomfortable, and then I'd resolve the discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, I could walk them through a, a whole thing that I planned out very carefully, and it was emotionally involved. Uh, and as long as what I was doing was reasonable, if three out of 300 students were offended or they didn't like what I was doing, that was considered okay. Like, you can't please every single person. There are misunderstandings. But what happened after 2014-2015 is if a single student is upset, they now have mechanisms to report you, to demand that you be punished or denounced or renounced. Um, and that began to happen. Um, to professors, uh, and we we started having to teach the most sensitive students. This is when Greg Lukianoff came to me and said, "John, weird stuff is happening. Some students are demanding protections from speech." So, so at first we thought this was just in universities, and without Twitter and other social media platforms, this wouldn't have happened. Um, students could, of course, they could always go talk to the dean uh, directly, but they're not going to do that if they can press a button, do something privately. You know, uh, that's what they would do. Um, that was in universities, 2014, 2015, it starts. 2018, 2019, now it spreads out into the corporate world. And I just hear story after story. You know, I, I talk to, uh, I talk to uh, you know, senior people at the New York Times, or, you know, uh, colonists, editors, uh, and they tell me the same thing. People, everyone there is on the left, but they're afraid of, like, the junior copy editor or the, you know, the, you know a young person in publicity who has the power to, you know, say something on the Slack channel that causes a blow-up. Everyone's walking on eggshells. Cable TV didn't do that. Cable TV changed the information flow. It didn't change our relationships with the people in our company, our university, our classroom. Social media has made us afraid in a way that no previous technology has. At least that's what I say. You be jerking. So question in the chat, uh, Luke, when shopping on Amazon, do you find yourself overwhelmed by the glut of choice? And the answer is no, because I largely rely on Amazon's recommendations. So there are some times in my life where I appreciate a lot of choice, but uh, generally speaking, making choices requires energy. It's often, often a hassle and an aggravation. So there are many times when I just like to have things streamlined for me. Is more from Jonathan Haidt talking with Robert and, Wright. And, you know, the way he behaved, the things he said, these would have been disqualifying 10 years earlier. Talking about Donald Trump. Um, now, as for your hope that sometime, like, totally misrepresenting your enemies is going to become somehow not cool, or, you know, some of these out outrageous techniques is going to be a source of shame. If there was a shared framework, if there was a sense of how we do things, if there was a shared culture, that could happen. But my argument is in the post-Babel world, there is no shared culture, and there will not be a shared culture for the rest of our lives. I can't say what's going to happen in 200 years. But I will predict that 20 or 30 years, there will not be a shared culture, a common sense, a, a, a common understanding. You know, if, if we're attacked, if there's a terrorist attack, if something happens, I, I don't think there'll be a common understanding of what has happened to us. I think it's Babel from here on in, at least for the next several decades. What do you mm -hmm. think about that? Well, let me say, first of all, let me say, I don't think I finished my, I threw Matt Iglesias' name out there. I find Robert Wright a very annoying host and interviewer. He just interjects way too much. He talks way too much. So not a fan of how he conducts these things. 
Here's Jonathan Haidt talking with Yasha Monk. makes sense before 2014. Um, but, um, you know, let's suppose, uh, as I said in this essay with Tobias Rose Stockwell, uh, the one on uh, social networks, um, you know, if God was just really bored one day and decided to double the gravitational constant, you know, he's up there watching these planets circle around each other and they've done the same thing for billions of years. Let's just double the gravitational constant and see what happens. And everything would just go crazy and, you know, planes would fall from the sky and machines would stop working, bridges would collapse. Um, and in that new world, our intuitions wouldn't work right. And, and that I think is what has happened. So what you're saying makes sense before 2014, but I think it, there's a whole new world. The dynamics are different. And the two big things are one is the loss of any ability to have any sort of common or shared story or shared understanding of what's going on. And there's an important principle in social psychology, which is that when we can't make sense of something, we just get paralyzed. Ambiguity makes us, you know, if, if it's a clear emergency, people will help. But if they don't know what's going on, they just kind of stand there. And that, that stupid advice that used to be given, you know, if you're being raped, you shouldn't yell rape, you should yell fire because people are so selfish that they won't come, you know, that's ridiculous because if you just make it confusing, people will just be paralyzed. So the loss of an, the inability to understand what's going on, and this I've seen over and over again, I've spoken to many leaders who faced these various you know, groups protesting and to making demands and going to social media and trying to humiliate them and attacking them, their reputation personally. Um, and some of them break down into, into tears, literally tears. I've, I've spoken to leaders who have cried in front of me recounting how, how painful this was for them. But in all cases, it's like, but, 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 you know, but I'm, I'm progressive. Like I share their values. Like I, I, I want them to, you know, you know, but yet they kept attacking me. A lot of people think they're brave until the mob comes for them. Right? A lot of people think, oh, I'd stand up under pressure, right? You don't know what pressure is until the mob comes for you. And then you may discover, I think in 99% of instances, most people discover they're not nearly as brave as they thought they were. Um, it's, it's a different world and the pre-babble intuitions don't apply anymore. And a big part of it is so it's the loss of any shared story or, or understanding. And the other is the democratization of intimidation and freeing it from accountability. So, uh, you know, I use way too many metaphors in my writing, but the, the, one of the central ones in this new piece is, um, is, is that if everybody was given a little dart gun, and not a gun where you could kill people, just a dart gun, it shoots darts, and it, you know, it would really hurt to get hit with a dart. You have to pull it out of your arm, it would hurt. And of course, if you get hit with one dart, you never know, like you could, there could be 50 darts coming, and that would really, really hurt. And so if you're a university president or an editor at a newspaper, and, you know, and someone calls you a bigot or a transphobe or whatever it is, and then there's a movement to get you labeled as that, um, almost nobody can stand up to it. And you know, we like to say, well, why don't you just grow up here and have some courage? Um, but it's not so easy to say, or it's not so easy to do in the moment. And that's another thing that social media has changed is we're used to dealing with things at a certain speed and we're used to, if someone accuses you of something, you can defend yourself and, and that might play out over days and days. But when it can move so quickly and accelerate so fast, people panic. And this is what you look, you had that great article, stop, you know, stop firing people in the Atlantic. Um, and, and what we see over and over again is as soon as there's a sign of trouble, um, you know, it's just very hard for people to, to stand up to it because we're all using our pre-babble intuitions. Um, so I'm not sure if I've agreed or disagreed with you, but yes, that's the central dynamic. What's going on? So what am I saying that violence and intimidation work? Well, they can work, but they could also lead to unpredictable consequences. I'm saying that my main point is that people vastly overestimate their capacity for courage. Most people tend to overestimate their abilities in certain areas. So we tend to underestimate how much influence we can have on other people. We tend to overestimate our capacity for courage we tend to overestimate our capacity for driving well. We tend to overestimate our, our honesty, our, how hard we work, uh, the moral quality of our lives. 
So many areas we tend to overestimate ourselves, some areas we tend to underestimate ourselves. I was just watching the documentary 20 Feet from Stardom about all these backup singers and talking about being completely out of touch with reality. There was this one one woman, Claudia Lanier, who was uh, Mick Jagger's girlfriend and uh, singer on Rolling Stones tours. And she was talking along with these other backup singers, how she had no interest in being looked at as a sex object. And then she was asked, but didn't you pose for Playboy? I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I guess I posed for Playboy. So these backup singers were protesting. They're not interested in being looked at, right? but they agreed to appear in public almost naked. So maybe one difference between the stars and the backups is the level of self-honesty. And uh, people really don't like it when you tell them to grow up and, and take responsibility. People prefer to live in excuses. So all these backup singers have all these elaborate excuses about you know why they didn't become stars. But uh, the nature of reality is that there can only be so many chiefs, right? Most people have to be Indians. And th there's a reason why you can't make peace with reality, right? When you live in reality, you get to minimize humiliation. Humiliation is when you get caught living outside of reality. So don't talk to me about how you have no interest in being a sex object, but then pose naked for Playboy. Uh, don't tell me you have no interest in being looked at, but you know, agree to perform in public almost naked. So back to the question of personal identity. What is a woman? And opens up about his personal struggles. You're consumed every day by taking those pills and getting those pills. Tucker's must-see interview, streaming today on Fox Nation. Last night, we showed you part one of our interview with Brett Favre, streaming right now on Fox Nation. Starting tomorrow, part two of that interview goes online. It's interesting, of all the people who played, particularly at the highest level in the NFL, Brett Favre is one of the very few who got out fully intact, not just physically, but with an intact and happy family. How did he do that exactly? Not a shallow guy, it turns out. That's how he did it. In this interview, he tells us the single most important piece of advice he gives people who ask him for advice. Here's a preview. You just play and let the chips fall where they may. And, and you know, save your money, enjoy yourself, but don't you don't try to... Because when you start doing that, it's like, uh, I'm going to play in this game, in this preseason game, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to play not to get hurt. Well, who's the first person to get hurt? That guy. And, and that's the way, not everybody, but the, the mentality some of, some of the guys would have was, I'm going to play this, this amount of time, or I'm going to play this way in this game. And you can't play that way. And you, you can't, your mindset, I don't think you, you can be successful because it, before you know it, it's over. And you go, well, I thought I was going to play eight years, but I didn't even make the roster. And I, I saw that happen so many times. It sounds like a, a broader life lesson. So you're just all in every day and then kind of let what happens happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, the, what was so cool about the game of football and, and the, the teammates was all different backgrounds, race. Size, speed, there was, there was just a discrepancy, but we came together as one. And that was the beauty of it. When you won a, 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 an unbelievable game that you won on the last play, 
celebrating with your teammates, there's nothing like it. I can't describe to you what that feeling is to see the guys look at me like, man, we did it. We did it. And the, the we is an important part of that, that phrase. And they're, like throwing a touchdown pass in Lambeau Field, there's no substitute for that we, that united feeling. That, and, and losing a tough game together, man, crying. I cried many a days after a tough loss, but I, I cried with my teammates and yeah. because it mattered. And um, not every guy played that way or with that passion. Or, or I, I think when it was over for him, however many years it was, how, how, how much or how little, they didn't appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, I coached high school football for two years when I retired. Didn't make any money, didn't want any money, and enjoyed the hell out of it. And I thought I was, it was kind of a favor to the head coach to, to be his offense coordinator. But I, it ended up being a blessing because I really enjoyed it. But I would tell those kids all the time, you got to enjoy the moment. I said, first of all, you're young. When I was your age, I couldn't wait to be 21 or move on to the next level. And while I was fortunate enough that I played long enough the NFL that time sort of stopped, if that makes sense. Yeah. Along the way that I could kind of stop and smell the roses. You know, the first seven, five, seven, eight years, man, it was balls to the wall, just go blowing and going. And next thing I know, it's like, it seemed like it took forever, but before you knew it, it's like, you know, when you turn 30, the next birthday is 50, you're 53. Yeah. And the next birthday was 53. And I'm like, damn, where'd all the 23 years in between go? Just, you know, you know. So be, I was fortunate enough that I played long enough that I could kind of stop and say, you know. I'm sorry. I made a really bad judgment call playing, playing this. This, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So it used to be easy to answer the question, what is a woman? What do women want? That was a whole nother question. But what is a woman? Well, whoa, whoa. You know, no is he calling out my documentary so there? What women want? Is he is he doing a shout out to my epic documentary here? You could tell by looking. Now, even Supreme Court justices don't know the answer. So to get to the bottom of this new question, this is an essential question, Matt Walsh decided to make a documentary about this. The piece is called What is a Woman? In the film, Matt Walsh spoke to gender-affirming therapists to better understand his own gender. Here's part of it. With the fluidity of these things, how do I know if, if I'm a woman? You know, I... I that's a great I question. Like, I like scented candles. And yeah. I've watched Sex and the City. And, yeah. Um, yeah. So how do I know? Yeah, Matt, that question right there, like that question is like when it's asked with a lot of curiosity, right? That's the beginning of a lot of people's like gender identity development journeys. What is a woman? Mm. Yeah. Great question. I'm not a woman, so I, <laughs> I can't really answer that. Yeah. If you like scented candles, it could be the beginning of your gender development journey. Walsh also spoke to a pediatrician who assured them that women taking puberty blockers, while it may effectively castrate them, is no big deal. A kiddo who is just starting puberty and panicking because they're getting breast buds or their penis is getting bigger and busier and they're worried about all kinds of masculine changes. And that way, puberty blockers, which are completely reversible, and don't have permanent effects are wonderful because we can put that pause on puberty 
just like if you were listening to music. You put the pause on, and we stop the blockers, and puberty would go right back to where it was. The next note in the song just delayed that period of time. Of course, puberty blockers are not completely reversible, and they absolutely do have permanent effects, obviously. So that raises the question, are those interviews real? We thought we'd ask Matt Walsh directly. He's the host of the Matt Walsh Show. His documentary, What is Woman, is out now at The Daily Wire. Matt, thanks so much, first of all, for making this, second for coming on to explain it. But those interviews, just those clips we showed, were so over the top. Were those real? Uh, I wish I could say that we that we invented that. The, the thing is, if I was going to invent like a parody of left wing gender theory, I would never think to create, you know, a, a therapist who tells me that I'm actually a woman because I like scented candles. I would have thought that's too far. But no, this is this is very real. And one thing that, you, you know, that comes out in the film is that a lot of this stuff on the surface, it's, it's hilarious because it's so absurd. But then you realize that, th that this is gender ideology is utterly pervasive and it's all over the country. And what you just heard there, I mean, a therapist who will tell you that, yeah, you might be a woman because you like scented candles. Um, there are people who are actually confused going into these kinds of counselors and therapists and coming out even more confused, which is all by design. So there's the absurdity on the surface. And then underneath it, it's it's really quite sinister. So the second interview, the clip that we played that was a physician because she claimed puberty blockers have no long term effects, which, of course, is not true. So why does she have a license still? Is she a doctor? She's a doctor and she's also a, a, she's a pediatrician. She specializes in this kind of thing, working with uh, with gender confused kids and uh, and putting them on the path to chemical castration, which is exactly what that is, by the way. I mean, we, we get into an yes. exchange about this. The, the drug they use that they call puberty blockers is uh, that's Lupron. And that drug is actually used to chemically castrate sex offenders. Uh, and they are giving it to kids. And I, I brought that up to her in the film. And uh, and that was the first time that she threatened to get up and walk out of the room because she didn't want to talk about it. But that is exactly what these people are doing. And But, but what we discovered, of course, is that they don't want to answer any questions at all about any of this. And they can't. I mean, the gender ideology and the agenda that they have cannot withstand even the slightest scrutiny, which is sort of the point of the question is, OK, let's start with let's define our terms. What even is a woman? They can't answer that. They, they don't have an answer to that question. Thank you for making this. Uh, it's, that's just amazing. You. I cannot believe you got them to sit down with you. Thank Great you. Great to see you. Thank you. Matt Walsh. Thank you. Thank you so much for making this. Okay, we got uh, by public demand from the chat, we got Tom Longo here going off on European elites. Let's see what uh, what Tom has to say here. I like, and I and I love, you know, and, and I, I love the idea of rebuilding a, a world gone that that's gone wrong. And I'm but I'm and I'm gonna do so with every erg of my being that I do it truthfully. Mm. Okay. And if I have to say, I was told, I was, I was at my local feed store the other day. I was, I've told this story before. I turned to my, 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 my the, 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 the people who run the feed store. And I'm like, you know, can't barely get any hay right now. Barely get any freaking goat feed. Can't sell any goats because, you know, it's been crazy dry and then too, then too wet. And no one can afford to feed them. And the feed's $20 a bag and crappy hay is $10 a bale. I mean, it's insane, the, the cost. But I said to every, I said to the people around the store, I'm, so, I'm glad you're still in business. I'll be here. I'm not complaining about the prices at all. I understand. And. But we have to start stop thinking about ourselves in terms of country. It's not a country anymore. We live here in this little town in North Florida. Our economy, your economy matters. Everything that you can source has to come within 50 miles of this place. The feed, the hay, the, 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 all of it. 
It has to come from, that's where we have to figure out how to make that work. Otherwise, we're not going to survive. We have to shore up the local food production. We have to make sure that our local farmers that are struggling to, to get you know, proper prices at, the, at auction for their, for their cows, now we give them top dollar. We don't, they don't go to auction to go feed a bunch of uh, ungrateful fucking purple-haired jackasses up in fucking New York, in Brooklyn, who are going to then turn around and steal our freaking money from us and tell us that we're bad people. The same thing with the fucking Europeans telling us we're bad people. Oh, well, you, you Americans are just so uncouth. And so, well, fuck all out of you. You can't feed yourselves. What the fuck, what the fuck are you so, so, so up your own ass about? What have you ever done except start wars with each other and exterminate each other over, over cultural divides? Like, why, why am I supposed to care about you people again? Why am I supposed to look at Germans and think that, they, they, that they've ever contributed anything other than misery to the fucking world? I mean, I bet the best thing I could say about Germans is most of their board game designers are good. Like, I, okay, Stefan Feld. I can go with Stefan Feld and Reiner Knizia. Fuck everybody else. Like, I, on balance versus Hitler, I'm like, I'm just not buying it. Or Klaus Schwab. Or Ursula von der Leyen. Oh, fuck that bitch. Like, fuck you people. Like, well, at the end of the day, I'm supposed to give a shit? Like, my fucking people ran the world for a thousand years, figured out that it was the worst goddamn job on the planet, and has had a tenuous relationship with government for 1,500 years since then. We have it right. Other than the friggin', other than the mafia in Rome that's, that, you know, thinks the world shouldn't, shouldn't advance anymore because they got in bed with fucking Germans and Brits. I will not say what I'm going to say next. Y'all know who I'm talking about. I'm done. If I keep going, it's going to get really bad. So, um, no, this is the problem, and this needs to end. The European Union is the Soviet Union rewritten with, you know, with better makeup. Like, that's it. And worse teeth. Because have you ever seen the teeth of Kiefer Hofstadt? Jesus. Like, people can't even feed yourself, for Christ's sake. And we're supposed to think you're insouciant and wise? Fuck you. You're just a bunch of arrogant Dutchmen. Like, that's it. Like, what else you got? <laughs> oh, so what I was going to no, no, I- Okay. New York Times today. Great column on the place of genetics in political choices. So once you realize how much our choices, our temperaments, the, the way we understand the world, our reactions are formed by genes it helps you to be more accepting of reality and to get less upset once you understand how much of your life's potential is limited at birth by by your genes then you can you can recognize that what drives other people is also largely genetic right so the the topic's still highly controversial but you have more and more political scientists working in the field of biological political science and if our political predispositions are genetic. Surely many of the other foundations of our temperament are also genetic, including intelligence. Right. So topic of nature versus nurture and political attitude formation is highly controversial. Many social scientists, right, they're, they're reluctant to venture into the genetic waters, but more and more are taking the plunge. And the evidence is clear that many phobias, preferences, behaviors are innate. People are born with political predispositions, particularly concerning the specific context-dependent individual issues like reaction to threat, reactions to outgroups, right? So 
political attitudes and behaviors are partially heritable, and there are correlations between specific genes and political types. Right, so we are increasingly uncovering genetic contributions to complex social traits. There are genetic variants linked to aggression, to same-sex behavior, happiness, well-being, antisocial behavior, tendencies to drink and smoke. So conservatism is about 74% heritable for the most informed fifth of the public. So there's your genetic strata. And then there's the environment and how much you choose to get informed. So if you have predisp a predisposition towards right-wing attitudes, then the more you get informed, then the more reliably right-wing you'll become. So think about yourself. There are times when you weren't particularly politically active. You had this strata that was probably right-wing, but it wasn't until you got activated and decided to get informed that your political leanings became more clear. So it's political knowledge that facilitates the expression of your genetic predispositions into mass politics. So many of our citizens have low levels of knowledge. They also inherit these genetic ideological predispositions, just like their high knowledge peers, but their orientations are weak because they don't have the knowledge necessary to develop concrete attitudes. So political knowledge is a key binding element for political development. So twin studies show that political ideology is about 40% heritable. About 60% of overall liberal conservative ideology is genetically influenced. That's not genetically determined, but genetically influenced. So just because something is influenced by the genes doesn't mean that that trait can't be changed or that genes determine the outcome or the trait. Genes can be expressed or not depending on the environment. So parents can exert an important impact on ideology when people are living at home or by choosing where you grow up, where you go to school, parents usually get to have a profound influence on who your peer group will be, right? When people leave the nest, genetic predispositions will increasingly influence their ideology. Family influences will dissipate. So people obviously have the same genes at all points in time, but genetic influences on ideology, whether religious or political or cultural, are expressed differently depending on circumstance. So you've got genes influencing character, and these characteristics make a difference in survival over long swaths of human history. Right? So even tiny differences add up to huge effects when multiplied by millions of people over millennia. Right? So we're talking about characteristics that make a difference in survival and get preserved in genetic terms. So populations tend to fall into a few basic categories as sex and reproduction, in-group defense, out-group discrimination, and resource allocation. Now, these underlying tendencies will affect people differently over time in different situations. So in England in the 1840s, might have looked like debates on pornography, prostitution, and slavery. In the U.S. now, may look like debates on abortion, transgender bathrooms, immigration, war, and welfare. But the underlying political and psychological issues they tap into are exactly the same. They get expressed differently, but the underlying challenge to survive is the same. So... How does this affect polarization? This is from Thomas Edsel's column today. So different people solve these problems differently. Right? People want everyone else to solve things the same way they do, pro-life, pro-choice. So why don't these things converge to universality over time? Like vision, all healthy people have two eyes. Well, we need both tendencies in a population to survive. Right? There are certain situations where openness to strangers 
serves you. That's adaptive. In other situations, openness to strangers will get you killed. You need different groups with different tendencies to have different attitudes towards strangers, right? Sometimes welcoming strangers is a great idea. Sometimes welcoming strangers is a terrible idea, right? You need both male and female gametes to reproduce. If you eliminated all of one sex, survival would not happen. So we need conservatives to compete and to fight and to defend against outgroups. And we need liberals to cooperate and build homes together and welcome strangers. So if you only have one side, you'd end up with a lot more annihilation. So we need both these left-wing and right-wing tendencies to be alive and competing. And these different tendencies will serve for survival in different ways depending on circumstance. So political traits, orientations, ideologies, and participating in voting, donating, volunteering all develop from the same issues of cooperation, reproduction, and survival surrounding group life that confronted our ancestors. So matters of sexual freedom, sexual mores, parenting, right? This has been going on for thousands of years. We, we've long had an access for need for access to mates, ways to ensure the survival of offspring, political views on immigration, a little different than the primal need to recognize and protect against the unknown, the unlike, and the potentially dangerous other. We've long had codified laws. Policing and punishment are akin to dealing with those who violate group norms in hunter-gatherer societies. Taxes, social welfare programs essentially revolve around questions of the best way to share resources for group living, foreign policy, and military matters of protecting one's in-group and defending against potential outgroups. So the labels change, the meanings of issues change across time and cultures, the mediums through which these political preferences are communicated have changed from the direct, the immediate, and the interpersonal, you know, person-to-person group sanctions to indirect, latent, and impersonal, the internet, voting for someone you've never met. The underlying connection between the core issues that are important to people revolving around cooperation, defense, reproduction, resources, and survival remain. Now, there's long been a view that acceptance of genetic influence is associated with intolerance, prejudice, and legitimation of social inequities and laissez-faire policies. No, not really, right? So these key assumptions that those who reject the influence of of genes are compassionate, tolerant, and racially enlightened, is just not accurate, right? People who accord genetics significant role in explaining the different traits that humans possess are more likely to be politically liberal, more likely to be tolerant of homosexuals, drug addicts, and the obese, and those with mental disabilities, no more likely to hold unenlightened racial attitudes. So it's those who believe traits are under personal control, the ones who tend to hold less tolerant attitudes. So in some political orientation is significantly heritable, around 50%. So that leaves plenty of room for environmental influences, but these tend to be idiosyncratic, the product of individual experience. So family seems to have less of an influence, maybe 10% of variation in political attitudes. So things like pro-sociality, being open and friendly to outgroups, positive emotions directed towards others, these are heritable traits. In-group bias is part of our evolutionary heritage. So some people are more predisposed toward being hostile and suspicious of outgroups. And some people are more hospitable. Right, so you map these tendencies and that psychology into a political environment characterized by fraying institutions, decaying trust in centralized authority, 
increasing demographic, religious, cultural heterogeneity. And it's a reasonable bet that our Stone Age minds will be primed for polarization. So our genetics predispose us to intense emotional reactions, right? They, we, we tap into prepotent emotional response patterns where we watch something as emotionally intense as a Tucker Carlson show because these intense emotional response patterns evolved as adaptations to group living in the evolutionary past. So meaning of what's liberal and what's conservative changes, okay, with respect to concrete policy content. So conservative and liberal may be best thought of in America today as identities. So many politically engaged Americans think of themselves as conservative or liberal based on prevailing implications of those terms. So liberals and conservatives motivated to act consistently within these identities to fit in and to relate harmoniously with other important people in their lives and to gain psychological value from expressing their identity. So an American who is genetically predisposed, predisposed to be receptive to a certain class of political messages, say one that rejects changes to traditional norms, well, if politically engaged, come to adopt other attitudes and political reactions that are linked with those messages at a political juncture, such as less environmental regulation. And then identity will often become shaped around attitudes towards specific people. So senators with very conservative voting records become perceived as less conservative if they do not support Donald Trump. So ideology is anchored in identity, right? Conservatism is now defined less by a given politician's stance on political issues than by his loyalty to Donald Trump. So genes cause ideology. Ideology influences the expression of genes, and both these processes are simultaneously embedded in a broader network of reciprocal and mutual influence and transaction with the environment. There's been no progress. What we're doing is terrible. Everything is white supremacy. Yale is white supremacy. We need to tear everything down and start again. But, and if we had not had social media, we would have kept going. We would have continued, I think. But you because think of social media, social media, and here I'm drawing on Martin Gurry, who says, uh, distributed networks are very good at tearing down, but they're not good at building. And social media, Twitter in particular, but also Slack and to lesser extent Facebook and other platforms, um, they're very good at critiquing. Everyone's a critic. Everyone complains. They're very good at tearing down, but they're not very good at building. And I would ask you know, people who say, well, of course the students are right to be protesting. I would ask them, in 2013, which is the group that was being marginalized? Which group was not welcome on campus? Who was excluded and a victim of extraordinary prejudice in 2013? You, know, you can't point back to 1950 and say, see, America is terrible and we need to burn everything down. Tell me who was excluded in 2013 I think, that we couldn't bring in. I think part of this... Uh Though I think part of the impetus for this grows out of frustration, implicitly at least, that the revolution has not translated more into material equality. And, you know, in terms of income levels, wealth levels, living conditions, and so on. Now, mm -hmm. uh, you and I may think, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, you know, look, my, my own political preference is for a, as a, as a progressive, this is the way I think of myself, is for fundamentally a class-based politics, okay? Yeah, like, like, come up with material benefits for mm -hmm. low-income people. If we have a problem in that some ethnicities are more concentrated at lower incomes, which we do, those policies mm -hmm. will disproportionately yeah. help those people, and, and, and so on. That happens. Okay, Steve Saylor's out with a column today in Tacky's Mag talking about big shots, modern school sh shootings, 
right, have exploded since Columbine. And uh, what's going on? Well, a major factor in a lot of these killings is the killing of witnesses, right? That doesn't get much attention. Nobody seems to care much about witness murdering, even though it's a sizable problem in the country. Both of the poor dead witnesses are because it feeds into feelings of impunity among potential killers in communities where snitches get stitches. Now, central engine of today's American racial problems is that uh, one group commits murder at about eight times the rate of the rest of the population. So some of that absurd gap is due to impulsiveness, but there's also a rational component driven by the difficulty cops have in clearing murder cases in neighborhoods where cooperative witnesses can wind up dead. Now, witness murdering is an omnipresent theme in suspense movies and detective novels, but it doesn't seem to engage the serious press, even though a war on witness murdering would seem to be one of the more promising ways to begin to ameliorate our race problem. But we're not supposed to mention that America even has a racial murder problem. So predictably, this problem has gotten much worse over the past two years. Number of blacks who've died by homicide was 38% higher in 2020 than in 2019. So everyone has a theory about why do we have all these mass school shootings? How did they become a thing? How did they turn into a cultural construct? Now, it used to be in the 1960s that bombings were fairly common. Why does America have this mass killing shooting problem? Well, America's always had a lot of guns, but we didn't have mass school shootings until late in the 20th century. So one theory is that school shootings are a contingent cultural construct. For most of American history, virtually nobody shot up schools, the same reason that virtually nobody demanded a sex change. Because whoever heard of such a thing, but once a bad idea becomes unthinkable, becomes thinkable, it can then have quite a run among the unhealthy. It used to be that there were almost no aircraft hijackings. Then in July 1968, Palestinian terrorists hijacked an Israeli jet, held hostages through 40 days of negotiation, finally walking free. This riveted world attention brought immense publicity to the previously ignored Palestinian nationalist cause and put the idea in the heads of quite a few jerks that hijacking an airliner would cure whatever ails them. Then we had an enormous increase in the number of hijackings in the late 60s, early 70s. And we've also had various castration crazes in history. We had the Russian Skopsy religious sect, which demanded castration of men and mastectomies for women, had about 100,000 members in the early 20th century. And in the English-speaking world over the past decades, discontented girls demanding top and bottom surgery has become a thing. So... Why have they become a thing, though? To be my uh, my bias, twentieth yeah, century empirically minded progressivism. Uh, that's my well, bias. It's also far left. It's also there's an interesting irony that some in some parts of the far left you have you have a certain like Glenn Greenwald is is kind of you know uh, is is kind of pushing back against identity politics. He would probably call himself a socialist now. <laughs> Um, so class-based politics, you know, is favored in a number of places to, uh, to the left of center. Now, you and I may think that there's an irony, and I do think there's an irony, which is that a lot of the political discourse that dominates kind of Democratic Party politics succeeds in helping basically a small number of elites from ethnic minorities, right? Like they are going to get the job at MSNBC, yeah. and they get this and they get that. And we're not, we're not doing a lot uh, to, to help the George Floyds of the world in the sense of, keeping them from winding up in the situation he found himself in in the first place, which is, you know, with a, with a, a life that w he, was in, he was in trouble to begin with. 
he, he, there was a reason there were cops there, you know, and so on. And so, you know, and there's an argument going on now on left of center. And it's not clear to me that uh, the forces you're worried about prevailing are going to prevail. Um, and I, I don't know. This is, uh, but in any event, I also think it isn't, I don't think it's just technology. There have been a lot of, uh, I, I've been listening to a book about the Russian Revolution. Things got pretty intense then, as you may oh, know. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> okay, yeah. so oh, go yeah. ahead. Yeah, so, um, okay, let's see. There's a lot, of, a lot of threads we could go on here. Yeah. Um, okay, so here's the one that I'm going to go on. The central idea of my article, it's not just, oh, you know, social media is destroying everything. It's, I'm, I'm really trying to get down into the mechanisms by which people interact that leads to truth. So here I'm drawing on uh, Jonathan Rauch's incredible book, The Constitution of Knowledge. Rauch talks about how um, the, the liberal tradition in the West created universities and journalism and courts, uh, a jury system where you've got adversarial attorneys trying to present both sides. Um, and in this way, because you, you can't get rid of confirmation bias, all you can do is harness it so that people have different confirmation biases they cancel out. And that's, you know, if the legislature is working well, that's what happens. You need people on the left, on the right, they criticize each other. And uh, Rauch says, these, these institutions are, are machines for, for turning difference into better policy, something like that. Mm -hmm. They need difference. They need, but it has to be managed conflict. That's a key term, managed conflict. Um, so if Congress were properly constituted so that there was debate, that would manage conflict. But if you give everybody knives or flamethrowers and all they do is kill each other, well, they, that's not managed conflict. Um, now, to bring it back to what you said about um, right now, yes, there's been enormous progress in equality on the books. There's been enormous progress in equality before the law. There has not been as much progress on equality by outcomes. Um, on gender, there's actually been quite a lot, but not but far from perfect. If, if we just look at outcomes, of men, of course, still make more money. Older men, in the 20s, it's actually pretty much the same because young men are doing so badly and they're not finishing college. So actually, in the 20s, it's actually pretty much a parody. But overall, older men still make more than older women. Um, th these disparities are complicated, and social scientists have been studying them intensively since the 60s, at least. Okay, let's get a little more here from Tom uh, Longo. People are going to see where they really stand. Yeah. And I, I, re I really think it's going to be something like this. I think Elon Musk is going to start doing some blockchain exit poll or something and be like, like if Elon tweeted right now, who really won the 2020 election? Who, who won the 2020 election? We both know the majority would be Trump. Yeah. I think we're at this tipping point where people are going to, this is the crux of what I'm getting at, is they're realizing they're not alone. They have these Tom Luongo rants in their head, but they go, I can't say that. I can't say that. The reality is it's like when you say, sorry, I go on a rant. And I'm going, no, I agree with everything you're saying. Right. I don't think, I don't think we're unique. I think most people no, Okay, so this is nonsense that uh, Trump really won the 2020 election. So a lot of these unhinged rants from Tucker's rant at the, the top of the show to what Tom Longo is going off on here, global elites basically doubled our lifespan in the past 120 years. So in some ways they're wrong, but the populists are wrong just as often. I know we're not, I know we're not unique. Yeah. I, I worry about I worry about taking it one step too far and running afoul of obviously the censors. Like I, I like having a platform. Why I, I start to try and pull it back is that I like I, I I fully recognize that I can't be the fully unvarnished version of myself that I, everybody would like me to be because and and which at times they, they've seen over the last five or five or six years of me doing this because every once in a while I just come right out and I can't help myself and then I got to delete the video. And I'm dead serious when I do this, gotcha. because when I say this, because I understand that there's certain things you just can't say if you want to keep a business yeah. and like, okay, well that I, and I also think that at a certain level, and I've explained this as well in the past, I say, look, because I've got, I've gotten on shows and they like, they like, opened up with, Hey, let's talk about the Kazari mafia. I'm like, Hey, let's not like, what's the point? Is it going to make you feel good? Cause it's going to get me, it's going to get me banished. It's going to do, it's going to do away with my, my ability to make a, make a living, continue to do what I'm doing, help people as many, many people as possible and feed my fucking family. So maybe we shouldn't have that conversation. Oh, is that just, but that's going to make you feel good. 
Like, I don't, you know, this is where the bots come in and then they start attacking you on, on comment threads on YouTube or this place mm-hmm. or that place. Oh, well, come on, man. Don't, you know, don't shy away from, you know, naming the, the you know, like, what's the point? Is that gonna, just to make you feel good? You can go ahead and do that. You're just some fucking nobody on the internet. Like, I don't need to do that. I don't even think it's worth doing because they have the time. It's not even correct. Yeah. So what's the point? But we're also freaking angry that it's not hard to get somebody to, to go off on a rant that is like, I think it's safe to say fuck Europe because it's clear that the Europeans have literally embraced Nazism. Yeah. I like, mean, I don't even think it's like, like, I don't even think that's controversial at this point. Yeah. They want like, the they're defending Ukraine and Ukraine is literally there. Are, we, we took and nurtured the Azov battalion and made it a part of their freaking government and made it the most, the, the, the most powerful fighting force within the Ukrainian military. Like, you can't deny that. You, you can try and tell people that, well, no, they, you know, they, you know, they're not really Nazis. Okay, until, you know, hey, well, how about this picture? There's John McCain standing right next to this guy with a fucking swastika in his hand. Maybe Putin's got a point. Just saying. <laughs> like, you know. Like- okay, by popular demand, let's see what's on Sean Hannity's show. And welcome to Hannity. And we begin tonight with this Fox News alert. My full monologue, by the way, is coming up in just a moment. But first, we have breaking news out of Tulsa, Oklahoma, where this afternoon a gunman opened fire on a hospital campus. Here with the very latest is our very own Trace Gallagher. Trace. Sean, this happened at the St. Francis Hospital campus in Tulsa, a building that houses an orthopedic center and the offices of many doctors. We're told a man walked into the building with a rifle and a handgun and opened fire. Police say both weapons were used and that the death toll now stands at five, including four victims and the shooter who apparently turned a gun on himself. None of the victims has yet been identified, but witnesses say two of them appear to be dressed as a doctor and a nurse. Others could be patients or visitors. The shooter is only identified as a black male between the ages of 35 and 40. We are told the entire shooting lasted less than four minutes and that Tulsa police went into the building without hesitation. And the Tulsa mayor said the city should be proud. That is clearly a reference to the delayed entry we saw last week in Uvalde, Texas. Police are still in the building doing room-to-room checks and say that at least one witness did lock themselves in a closet during the shooting. So far, Sean, we do not have a motive. We'll bring you more as we get it. Sean. All right, Trace, thank you. Now, we'll continue to update you throughout the hour tonight as more information becomes available. But we begin with the trial everyone tonight is talking about, and it is now official. The circus is finally over, at least for now. A Northern Virginia jury has awarded Johnny Depp $15 million in his defamation suit against ex-wife Amber Heard. Now, the same jury then awarded Heard $2 million in her countersuit against Johnny Depp. In other words, Depp netted $13 million, cleared his name of the, quote, Me Too accusations leveled by Heard in a 2018 Washington Post op-ed. But in a civil case that involved the wildest of allegations and drug use and jealousy, physical, psychological abuse, verbal abuse, and one, well, rather unusual claim surrounding human feces in a bed, Neither celebrity, I can tell you this, emerged unscathed. It's like to watch, binge watch one of those Netflix series. Uh, It's dark. It's all consuming. No real winners from the civil trial. For example, here's one small look into this couple's tumultuous relationship. Very. I did not punch you. I did not 
punch you. I did not deck you. I hitting you. I don't know what the motion of my actual hand was, but you're fine. I did not hurt you. I did not punch you. I was hitting you. How are you? How, what am I supposed to do? Now, it would appear from what we just saw that Amber Heard was the abusive one in the relationship. Here's one more example of that alleged abuse. Take a look. She threw the large bottle and it made contact and shattered uh, everywhere. And I, I honestly didn't, I didn't feel the pain at first at all. I felt no pain whatsoever. What I felt was, um, I felt heat. I felt heat and I felt um, as if something were dripping down my hand, you know. Um, and then I looked down and realized that the, the, the tip of my finger had been severed and uh, I was looking directly at my bones. And here is more testimony from Depp claiming that he would run from room to room in order to get away from Amber Heard, which made her, well, let's say a little unhappy. Take a listen. I think that I ended up locking myself in about at, le at least nine bedrooms, bathrooms that day um, as she was banging on the doors and screaming obscenities and wanting to uh, have a physical altercation. Now, keep in mind, during the trial, Heard also leveled some very graphic allegations against Johnny Depp. By the way, viewer warning, what you are about to hear is pretty disturbing. Take a look. Um, and, and then it became clear to me he was, like, looking for something. He um, cleared things off the bed. I went into the bathroom, and as I come out, um, he's he asked me where it is and how long I've been hiding it. And I, was, I was like, what are you talking about? And he says, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Be honest with me. Where are you hiding it? And he starts, you know, pat, pat, what it feels like patting me down or saying he's patting me down. I can't recall, but he ripped my dress, the uh, strap top part of my dress. He's like grabbing my, my, my breasts. He's touching my thighs. Um, he rips my underwear off. Um, and then he, proceeds to do a cavity search. He was looking, he said he was looking for his drugs, his cocaine, his coke. Now, ultimately, a jury did not find most of Heard's outlandish claims to be credible, even after these text messages from Johnny Depp to a friend. Listen to this. I'd like to apologize to the court and to the jury for some of the language that I'm going to have to use today, but unfortunately, um, you're going to see a lot of documents with language like this. After you said, let's drown her before we burn her, Mr. Depp, yes. you said, I will f her burnt corpse afterwards to make sure she is dead. That's what you said. 
Now, needless to say, regardless of who you believe or what you believe, uh, one thing is obvious. This was not a healthy relationship in any way, especially given the allegations of revenge defecation. Watch this. I had received some news that was as absurd and grotesque and cruel. Um, and then I was shown a picture of what the problem was. What was the photograph of Mr. Depp? It was a, it was a, it was a photograph of the bed, our bed, um, and on my side of the bed, um, was human fecal matter. Um, so I understood why it wasn't a good time to go down there. There are so many takeaways you can get from this trial. I guess you could start. Don't do these kind of drugs. It's not going to end well. Uh, and also, again, as a public, we're reminded, never rush to judgment. We do believe in the presumption of innocence. Due process is critically important always. And just because somebody does make an allegation does not make it true. We saw this with Justice Kavanaugh. We saw it with Clarence Thomas. We saw it in the UVA rape case. We saw it with Duke Lacrosse. We saw it with Nicholas Sandman, Cambridge Police, Ferguson, uh, Missouri, Baltimore, Richard Jewell, and, and here we go again. So many people did rush to judgment. In a statement from his spokesperson, Depp celebrated the verdict, thanking the jury for giving him his life back after the, quote, false and very serious and criminal allegations that were levied at him via the media. Meanwhile, Amber Heard, now down $13 million, was less upbeat, quote, the disappointment that... Okay, so what's the uh, greater meaning of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard case? I haven't paid much attention to it, virtually none. But uh, Steve Saylor had some interesting things to say. So on May 21st, he wrote, Johnny Depp is defeating his ex-wife Amber Heard in the court of public opinion. And that's just wrong because Miss Heard is a woman and we must believe women. So... Johnny Depp was suing his ex-wife for $50 million in a defamation case for allowing to be published under her name a Washington Post op-ed implying that Johnny Depp was guilty of sexual violence. So this is her op-ed title. Amber Heard, I spoke up against sexual violence and faced our culture's wrath. That has to change. Now, her op-ed was actually written by four ACLU lawyers. after She had promised to donate half of her $7 million divorce settlement from Depp to the once-respected NGO. That's a little bit like uh, John F. Kennedy's bestseller and Pulitzer Prize winner, Profiles in Courage. That was not written by him. That was written, essentially arranged for him by the B'nai B'rith, I believe. So, turns out the public is not just mindlessly rooting for Amber Heard as a member of Team Women like they're supposed to. Instead, the public is listening carefully and deciding between two individuals, and this is driving the gatekeepers nuts. And so this is driving the New York Times nuts on its op-ed, May 20th. The humiliation of Amber Heard is both modern and medieval. 
And then Vox explains why the Death Herd trial is so much worse than you realize. All right, what's going on in this trial, guys? It's being amplified by men's rights activists, part of the far-right-leaning extremist manosphere that just bent on discrediting Amber Heard. Right, just wants to destroy every woman who accuses men of abuse or domestic violence. And this far right has do dominated every corner of the internet from TikTok to Twitch to Etsy. Yes, the alt-right notoriously dominates TikTok, Twitch, and Etsy, the Crafts website. Even Saturday Night Live has lampooned the trial. I mean, how dare Saturday Night Live go for laughs instead of edification? Now, I want to hear Amber Heard say, do I entertain you? And America's answer would be, not when we have to pay to see you in the movie theater, but this free stuff is great. So Vox is upset that uh, we're using social media's natural ability to contort reality. Rarely has it been bent this far, this rapidly, for this many people in the service of something vile. So by contrast, recall the superbly responsible job the mainstream media has done over the last two years reporting on the mostly peaceful protests and racial reckoning at a cost in incremental dead bodies well into the five figures and counting. So what we're witnessing here, according to Vox, are the dramatically compounded effects of morally motivated networked harassment, which holds that a group of social media users feel they can justify any amount of abuse directed at a target if they feel their cause is morally right. Now, this is, of course, totally different from what happened to all those Karens, like the Central Park Karen, did she ever get another job, who deserved everything they had coming to them. You see, Amber Heard is on the good team, not the bad team. Now, don't listen to all these far-right figures on social media who are pushing outrage and misinformation and weaponizing fandom culture, all right? You need to listen to the prestige press, generally picks out carefully vetted heroes to promote, like George Floyd. And uh, Sailor blogs this afternoon, I suspect this is what the public really wants in the age of Me Too and Donald Trump, celebrity versus celebrity show trials where all their personal secrets get aired. A little well, more my brethren in this, you know, in, in the nominal anti-U.S. empire punditry set that I'm not an unrepentant, Europe, sympath, unrepentantly sympathetic European leftist. I'm not. I'm an American, hardcore, right-wing libertarian who looks at the shit and goes, everybody's freaking dirty and the European commies need to be fucking killed. Done. And then by doing that, we can destroy, the, we can destroy what's left of the American empire in the process. But the, or, but the order of operations here is that Europe needs to die. Europe needs to die because Europe has been subsidized and has destroyed and turned. It's the subsidization of Europe over the last 75 years, which turned the United States into an, a vicious empire. And it can be re and it can be rejiggered. It can be brought low and recalibrated. But the only way we do that is by cutting everybody off in the monetary heroin. And you let it all liquidate. And a lot of people are going to lose a lot of power. But they're not, but not everybody is going to lose all their power. Most of the people that we've talked about in this podcast so far today, they're going to lose their power. People in, on Wall Street, they're going to lose 75% of the power they currently have. And people on Capitol Hill that currently wield too much power are going to lose 75% of their power. They're going to lose it all. But I got news for you. The European Union won't survive the decade. And is that not a better, is that not a better outcome for humanity? 
or are you so doctrinaire in your in your in your leftism that you can't un- you can't understand the beauty of the decentralized nature of the federal of the federal system that is the United States, which actually stopped the Great Reset cold simply because Ron DeSantis stood up and said, you know what, fuck you. One fucking guy with one legislature in one state in the United States stood up proud, said, that's enough, no more, and started putting people in jail. That's all it took. That's why he's going to be president in 2024. And, the, and I'm telling you, New York is turning into a museum. Right-wing media is coming to South Florida. The hedge fund set are all moving to South Florida. The money is all moving to Florida in the United States. The money power base is moving to Florida. It's why they're desperate to try and figure out how to kill us all. It's why the Biden administration is going to, is, 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 is trying to pull out our, our ability, or is, is putting pressure on insurance companies to leave the state. So the next time a hurricane comes through, we won't be able to rebuild our houses. This is the, what we're dealing with. These are the kinds of vandals we're dealing with. This is how much Obama hates America. This is how much Obama hates you. Hates all of us. Done. I'm, I'm, just, I'm done. That's it. That's it's done. Women are killing everything. Women... It's not even just the Jews, Cam. It's women. It's women. Take it easy, Ben Shapiro. Take it easy. I am m- way more misogynistic than I am anti-Semitic. All right, Nick Fuentes, ladies and gentlemen. All, all these, all these people are like, he's motivated by anti-Semitism. It's like, if you want to know the truth, I'm really motivated by misogyny because women are wrecking Star Wars. They are raping Star Wars. It would, it'd be what if they canceled star wars they would have killed it if, if they were to just say we're not making star wars anymore they would have killed it but they're not they're digging up star wars corpse and they're having sex with the corpse they're they're digging up the corpse of star wars and they're dragging it to your childhood home and they're cutting its head off and shitting down its throat and raping it and then and they're laughing while they do it that's what women are doing to us that's what women are doing to men and boys you know, forget about forget about the globalists replacing us in our own country with immigrants. That's really besides the point. Women, women have exhumed the corpse of Han Solo. They have dragged it into your living room in your childhood home under the Christmas tree. And they're cutting his head off and shitting down his throat and raping him. And they're laughing while they do it. And they're saying, in your face, Obi-Wan Kenobi's a pussy. Luke Skywalker is a pussy. Han Solo sucks. That's what they're saying. Straight up. It's pure evil. And it's far worse than anything any other group group is doing. I would rather get mugged by a black guy than have them ruin Obi-Wan Kenobi. This black Sith Inquisitor, I've so had it, man. If I wasn't racist before, yeah, this just made me racist. If If I didn't have a bone to pick... With the black race before, you know, this black Sith Inquisitor, she's going to do it for me. She's going to do it for me. Okay, that's it. Good night. Bye-bye.